Well, once a little girl came home from Sunday school so excited, she announced, Mom, God can do anything. He works miracles with his left hand, and he heals with his left hand, and he holds us close with his left hand. Well, the mother was thrilled that her little girl was so enthused about God, but she didn't understand this fixation with God's left hand. She told her daughter, she said, honey, you realize God can also use his right hand? The little girl shook her head and said, no, mommy, he can't. We learned in Sunday school this morning, Jesus is sitting on God's right hand. (laughs) Obviously, she was a bit confused. Jesus isn't sitting on God's right hand. He's sitting at God's right hand. Hebrews 7 and 8 teaches us that after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven where he now sits with God. He he sat down at God's right hand. And today, he functions as our eternal high priest. He ever lives to make intercession. In chapter 5, verse 10, the writer of Hebrews introduced the priesthood of Jesus. Called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say. And yet you remember the writer was unable to say it because the Hebrews weren't ready for these deeper truths. His readers could handle the milk, but not the meat. In his commentary on this book, Warren Wiersbe, he makes an interesting observation. He says, the emphasis in Hebrews is not on what Christ did on the earth, the milk of the word, but what he is doing in heaven, the meat of the word. Wiersbe saying that the basics of the Christian faith revolve around Jesus' earthly ministry, while his priestly ministry constitute the meat of the word. Jesus did. He spent just 30-odd years at work on the earth, but he has now spent 2,000 years ministering in heaven. The priesthood of Jesus is an important topic that we shouldn't overlook, and it's our subject for this morning. Well, chapter 7 begins. For this Melchizedek, and this strange fellow mentioned here, Melchizedek, he appears three times in Scripture. Genesis 14 speaks of him historically. Psalm 110 sees him prophetically. And Hebrews 7 discusses him doctrinally. You know, if I were to ask you to name the top ten major figures in the Old Testament, I'm sure that Melchizedek would not make your list. He probably wouldn't make the top 50. But the writer of Hebrews surprises us by placing an amazing importance on the life and ministry of this obscure, cryptic, mysterious character named Melchizedek. Well, first we're told Melchizedek was king of Salem. Salem means peace. It's short for the name Jerusalem or the city of peace. Melchizedek was the king of Jerusalem and the priest of the Most High God. And that he was both king and priest should immediately tip us off to his unique status in the scriptures. For in Israel, there was a sharp division between church and state. Kings were forbidden to serve as priests. Kings came from the tribe of Judah, while priests came from the tribe of Levi. And any crossover was forbidden 
You remember in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 when King Uzziah tried to usurp the role of priest, God struck him with leprosy. Under the old covenant, only the Levites were allowed to serve as priests. You could say the priest had to have the right genes. He needed Levi genes. That Melchizedek was both a king and a priest means that he was of a different order of priesthood. He stood outside of the requirements of the Old Testament and of the Levitical priesthood. Now we're told this Melchizedek, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now remember the story from Genesis chapter 14. Syrian marauders had raided the city of Sodom and they had taken Lot and his family captive. Well, Uncle Abraham comes to the rescue. He chases down the bad guys, and he returns to Palestine with both Lot and the loot. And it was on his way back from the rescue mission that Abraham met this man, Melchizedek. Genesis 14, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. You pay attention to that. Notice what he brings out. Bread and wine. Melchizedek then blessed Abraham. And we're told in verse 2, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. And of course, a tenth is another word for tithe. Here Abraham tithed his spoils of battle to Melchizedek. Now elsewhere in the scripture, Abraham's act is held up as an example to us. This is where we get the principle of tithing or of donating a tenth of our income to God. As Abraham, the father of our faith, gave a tenth to the priest. Likewise, we who are saved by faith should give a tenth to the priestly ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. Well, we're told more about this name of this mysterious king priest, Melchizedek. First being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. He was king of righteousness and peace. Verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest continually. How would you like to be the FBI agent assigned to this guy's background check? No dad, no mom, no descendants, no birthday, no date of death. If you didn't know better, you'd think old Melchizedek was in the witness protection program. There's actually a great debate over the real identity of Melchizedek. Was he simply a Canaanite prince or was he more? Early church father Origen believed that he was an angel. Other scholars say he was Noah's son, Shem. Some commentators have explained away his mysterious description, without father, without mother, etc., as more figurative than literal. To them, it's not that he had no parents, but in contrast to the Levitical priests, his parentage was irrelevant to his priesthood. That sounds good, but that's not what the writer says. I personally believe the description given here in verse 3, when taken literally, gives you but one explanation. Add up the clues. King of righteousness. Prince of peace. 
He carries with him the elements of bread and wine or Christian communion. No human parentage or genealogy, no beginning or end of life. In my opinion, Melchizedek can be none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of our Lord Jesus. Long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, I believe he ruled as the king priest of Salem. Well, Verse 4 tells us, Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And now the discussion gets very, very Jewish. There we go. You can't get any more Jewish than that, by the way. Very Jewish now. Remember, this letter was written to Hebrews. So its issues and its arguments were relevant to Jewish concerns. What happened to the Levitical priesthood may not jump out as important to us, but it was critical to those who would receive this letter. And by trying to put ourselves in their shoes, there's a lot that we can learn now in the process. Verse 5. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. The 11 Hebrew tribes financially supported the tribe of Levi so that they could oversee the priestly duties of the sacrificial system. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them, that is this Melchizedek we're talking about, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here's a Jewish principle. The priest who receives a tithe or who initiates a blessing is of greater spiritual stature than the man who's tithing or the recipient of the blessing. Thus, when the tribes of Israel tithe to the tribe of Levi, the Levites blessed the same tribes. It was evidence that Levi was superior in terms of spiritual stature. Likewise, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, he was conceding that Melchizedek had more chops than he did. Levi might have been superior within Abraham's family, but Melchizedek was superior to the whole family, including Levi. And here was the point to these Hebrews who were breaking away from Judaism. Melchizedek, this new order of priest, is of greater stature than the Old Testament priests under which you've been living, the Levites. Follow me? Verse 8. Some of you are, some of you are not. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them. Implied is that Melchizedek is more than a mere mortal, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. The historical Melchizedek appears in Genesis 14. That's 2,200 B.C. But here we're told that he lives. Present tense. He lives today. For Melchizedek is a priest forever. And in an odd kind of Jewish way, the Levitical priests actually paid tithes to Melchizedek. This is where our Western Greek logic sort of breaks down. Just remember, this was written to Oriental Jews. He says in verse 9, Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father, 
when Melchizedek met him. Isn't that interesting? The Hebrews touted a concept called racial solidarity. That one man could act on behalf of a whole group. This was the idea behind the war between Israel and the Philistines. You remember each side sent out a champion to fight on behalf of their army. Instead of risking thousands of lives, David and Goliath fought it out in a proxy war. In Judaism, even ancestors could act on behalf of future generations. So when Abraham paid tithes, the Levites were still in his loins, in his Levi genes, literally. Thus, Jewish priests paid tithes to Melchizedek in their father Abraham. And in so doing, we're showing that Melchizedek's priestly ministry was superior to that of Levi's. It's strange thinking to us, but it was a convincing argument to these Hebrews who received this letter. It all illustrated that Jesus was a better priest than the priests of Judaism. In leaving behind their religion to follow Jesus, these Hebrews had found a better priest. It reminds me of the biology final. It was a tough class, this biology class, and the final exam promised to be very difficult. And so the professor decided to give the students a break. He told the class that they could bring to the exam as much information as they could fit on a single piece of notebook paper. Well, most of the students, they spent the night before writing down in tiny print, just cramming as much as possible on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of notebook paper. That is, except for one student. He came to class. He laid his empty sheet of notebook paper on the floor. And he had his friend, who happened to be a graduate student in biology, stand on the notebook paper. His expert friend told him everything he needed that day. And he was the only student in the class to get an A in biology. Proving conclusively... It's not as much what you know as it is who you know that counts. And this is true in religion. No one can enter into the presence of a perfect, holy God on his or her own. We will only get as far as our priests can bring us. This is why the Hebrews here were besieged with doubt. In embracing Jesus, they had been cut off from the only priests they had ever known. And yet here they're being assured, it's okay. For Jesus is a better high priest. Verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? In Psalm 110, verse 4, David had prophesied that Messiah would be a member of a new priestly order. If the Levites and the law had ushered in an effective means of gaining access to God, why did David think that a new priesthood was needed? He says, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. And this is an interesting point. With a new order of priesthood comes a new set of rules governing those priests and their duties. A new covenant in essence. For he, that is Jesus, of whom these things are spoken, belongs to another tribe other than Levi, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, 
of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Jesus was born from the royal tribe of Judah. The priest came from the tribe of Levi. Under the Old Testament, Jesus could have never been a priest. That's why God established a new covenant, new rules with a new priesthood. The order of Melchizedek. And remember the items that Melchizedek brought with him. The bread and the wine are symbols of a new covenant. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, and here he quotes again Psalm 110, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the Old Testament, priestly authority was conveyed by the Mosaic law upon the tribe of Levi, but under the new covenant, priestly authority is earned. And Jesus earned the role of priest by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. And now his endless life, he overcame death, hell, and the grave. Who now is better equipped? To usher God's people into God's presence. Realize there are two kinds of authority. There's delegated authority, which you receive from someone else. And then there's earned authority, which rises by virtue of your own merit. You know, on the silver screen, whenever John Wayne showed up, the bad guy shaped up. I mean, old John had authority. The old Duke didn't even need a badge. Didn't matter. When Wayne rode onto the scene, he was in charge by virtue of who he was and of what he'd done. In all of the movies he was in, he was always the most respected man in the room. And the same is true with Jesus. He is our high priest, not because of some arbitrary decree or some family pedigree, but because he is the most qualified man for the job. Levitical authority was not a matter of pedigree. But Jesus' authority is a matter of integrity and eternity. Jesus doesn't inherit a position. He merits a position. He lived a sinless life. He died an innocent death. He rose from the dead and ascended to God's right hand. Jesus pioneered his own way to God. Levites were given the right to be priests. Jesus earned that right. And then he says in verse 18, For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment, because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect or complete. See, the law was like a remedial class. You know, sort of kind of got you started with God. It caught you up on the basics, but it wasn't credit that counted toward a degree. It was a remedial class. Only in Christ can we graduate. He says in verse 19, On the other hand, in Christ there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he, or Jesus, was not made priest without an oath, for they, the Levites, have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath, by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, by so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. God never took an oath regarding the Levitical priesthood. He never pledged himself to permanently support their ministry, for he knew that it would eventually be replaced by Jesus. 
But in Psalm 110, when the priesthood of Jesus was predicted, God swore to support him forever. For the Lord has sworn, you are a priest forever. That's why Jesus brings us a far better hope. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. And here's another weakness of the Levitical priesthood. Their ministry was always transitory because the Levite priests kept dying off. The Jewish historian Josephus said that there were 83 high priests from the time of Aaron through 70 AD when the temple was finally destroyed. The Jewish Talmud held to a higher count. It claimed 18 priests served in Solomon's temple and another 300 in the rebuilt temple. The point, though, is that no Levitical priest lasted forever. The Levites were here today and gone tomorrow. Sort of like what the Braves are doing with their starting pitching these days. You notice what they're doing? They bring up a rookie who surprises the opponent. Then the next outing he gets rocked. And so they replace him with another rookie, a fresh arm from the farm. It's been working. Keeps surprising teams. But it's not ideal. It's scaring me to death. You'd rather have continuity. And this was the problem with the Jewish priesthood. About the time you gain confidence in one priest, he'd die off. And then you'd have to develop confidence in the next priest. Verse 24, but he, that is Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Jesus never gets injured. He never has a bad outing. He never tears his rotator cuff. He certainly doesn't keep dying on the job. He is the opposite of here today, gone tomorrow. Trust Jesus to secure for you access to God, and you'll have the same confidence a hundred years from now as you do today. For Jesus is a priest forever. Verse 25, wonderful verse. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Once an eight-year-old boy, he came home from school with a stuffed animal that he had won at a Valentine's party. His dad asked him, he said, How'd you win the prize? The little boy said, well, our teacher wrote all the names of the class down on a piece of paper, put them in a bowl, and then she picked my name out of the bowl. She picked the paper out, and it was me. Well, that's when a little guilty look came across this little boy's face. He confessed. He said, but Dad, I cheated. The confused father said, son, how did you cheat? The little guy looks up, and he says, Dad, I prayed. Realize there is mega power in prayer. Compared to how our unsaved friends and neighbors try to navigate through life, prayer is almost like cheating. A believer in Jesus really does have a hotline to God. And yet at times we wonder if God is listening to our prayers. You know, that's not the issue that should concern us. Here's what we should ask. Does God listen to Jesus' prayers? And of course, the answer is yes, of course. He listens to his son's prayers. I love this painting of Jesus. He's interceding for the world, praying for all of us. Today, heaven is praying for you. Verse 25 says, he ever lives to make intercession for us. 
You know, when I grow apathetic or when I get distracted, Jesus still stands before the eternal judge as my righteousness. When I blow it horribly, my advocate, Jesus Christ Esquire, reminds the court that his blood has paid in full my sin. He's paid for my forgiveness. When I ask for strength or need healing or plead for mercy or desire patience or long for love, Jesus intercedes and he secures for me a blessing. Because Jesus occupies eternity and always makes intercession, he is able to save us to the uttermost. Since Jesus is in charge of my salvation, it means that I'm saved today and I will still be saved a million years from now. And you have the same confidence. Yet often verse 25 here gets misread. For instead of save us to the uttermost, sometimes it gets read, save us from the uttermost. And it is true that the blood of Jesus can save even the most disgusting, despicable sinner. I mean, Jesus can save the underbelly of society, the drug dealers and the pimps and the child molesters and the serial killers. He can save from the uttermost, even the guttermost. But that's not what this verse teaches. The writer says that Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost. See, the emphasis here is not on the extent from which he saves, but, to the, but it's to the extent to which he saves. You know, I've heard people make the remark, oh, that guy over there, man, he may be saved, but he was saved by the skin of his teeth. You ever heard that? Or, oh, she, she, she's going to heaven, but she's just barely going to heaven. That is never true. Jesus never saves anybody by the skin of their teeth. That's not how he saves people. Just barely is never how Jesus saves you. When Jesus saves you, you're saved to the uttermost. You're as saved as you can get. All your sin, past and present and future, gets blotted out. Jesus' forgiveness is complete and total and permanent. As long as you're trusting in Christ, your standing with God is as sure and steady and reliable as it could possibly be. You know, realize some things in life occurs incrementally and gradually. For example, buying a house. I ran across an online buyer's guide with 18 steps for buying a house. Talk about torture. Try to buy a house. You pre-qualify for a loan. You find the house. You offer a contract. The buyer counters. You counter back. Contingencies get added. The contract gets signed. Then the real work starts. You have to qualify for the loan, a survey has to be done, a title search, an inspection, a termite letter, really? On and on it goes. Thankfully, a relationship with God doesn't develop incrementally. You don't have to pre-qualify. There are no counter-offers or inspections. Whoa, aren't you glad there are no inspections? That he takes us as is? There's no waiting and wondering if you'll be accepted. If the deal will actually go through. No, when you embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when you embrace Him with your whole heart, God closes the transaction immediately. And He moves in spontaneously. And from the first moment you believe, you're as saved, friend, as you can get. 
Yes, he saves from the uttermost, but he also saves to the uttermost. We're saved from the guttermost to the uttermost. Verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy. Again, notice his virtues. Notice how he has earned this job. He's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And because of his intrinsic worth, our Lord Jesus has now become higher than the heavens, he says. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Boy, the Levites sacrificed herd after herd after herd of lambs. A river of blood flowed from the temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus offered just one sacrifice, and that himself. His sacrifice was once and for all. Now he never needs to spill another drop of blood. His one sacrifice has permanently cleansed us of all of our sins. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Jewish priests were mortal men. Jesus is God's son. Who do you really want representing you? Now you'd think this would close the case on who is the better priest. But there was another argument. A priest is only as good as the temple in which he works. You see, you can be a great ice skater, but what if you've got no rink, no ice? Or you can be the best swimmer, but what if you've got no pool? And likewise, for a person to be an effective priest, he needed a temple in which he could ply his trade. And chapter 8 tackles the subject of Jesus' temple. Verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. There's no comparison here. The Levitical priest ministered in the earthly temple in Jerusalem, but Jesus ministers in the heavenly temple before the majesty himself. In the very throne room of God. At the time, the Jerusalem temple had been the center of Jewish life and religion for a thousand years. And these Hebrew believers who read this letter, they had now been barred from its courts because of their faith in Jesus. Thus, they desperately needed to know that Jesus and his followers had access to a greater temple. So he says in verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. This is important. Here we're told the tabernacle in the wilderness and later the temple in Jerusalem were actually copies. They were just small-scale models, toy models of heaven itself. In the book of Revelation, the veil gets peeled back and we get a peek into heaven. And there we find the realities of which the Old Testament replicated. The furniture adorning the temple, the ark, the altar, the lampstands, the labor, it all appears in heaven. What was on earth was just a copy of what exists in heaven. The temple of old was a shadow land of heaven. 
Then he says in verse 5, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And here he quotes Exodus chapter 25, verse 40. For on Mount Sinai, Moses was shown a pattern of the heavenly throne room and all of its furniture. How Moses was shown this heavenly pattern, we're not told. It's a matter of speculation among the rabbis. There's a passage in the Talmud that makes the comment, an ark of fire and a table of fire and a candlestick of fire came down from heaven. These Moses saw and reproduced. Some rabbis taught that Gabriel appeared to Moses in a carpenter's apron, holding models of the sacred furniture. He then showed Moses how to build them. The Bible doesn't give us specifics, but it is certain that when Moses descended from Mount Sinai, he not only held the two tablets of the Ten Commandments under one arm, but he held a set of blueprints under the other arm. The point is, is that the author here is telling us that the Jewish priest drove a toy model, whereas Jesus serves in the real deal. Verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Again, with a new priesthood came a new and better covenant and better promises. The Levites had served under an inferior system. But Jesus is a priest under a new covenant. He says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. If the old covenant had worked, if the Levitical priests had been successful and fully reconciled man to God, then a new covenant would have never had to be initiated. But God did promise a new covenant. And here the writer quotes a passage from Jeremiah 31. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day which I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Those two tablets given to Moses were imprinted with God's law. But they couldn't impart to God's people the power to keep the law. It was a regulation without any motivation. The law was like an x-ray. It diagnosed the break, but it did nothing to heal us. A better covenant was now needed to bring healing. And then in verse 10, still quoting from Jeremiah, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Under the new covenant, God no longer writes on stone tablets. He now etches his intentions and his desires into human hearts. When a person becomes a Christian, they become a new creation. You receive new instincts and new passions. God gives you a new heart. Dr. Christian Bernard was the first surgeon to perform a human heart transplant. Once he asked a patient if he wanted to see his old heart. Bernard took Philip Bellberg into a room, and he opened up a cabinet. The doctor took out a glass jar, and he handed to Philip his old heart. 
For a moment, there was nothing but silence. Philip Bellberg was the first man in history to hold his own heart in his hand. He asked Dr. Bernard a few technical questions about the procedure. And then he picked up the jar. He took a long last look. And he said to the doctor, So this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. He set it down on the counter. He walked away and he never looked back. He left it behind forever. And this is what a person who embraces Jesus Christ needs to do. God has done a heart transplant in us. He's cut out our defiant heart and he's replaced it with a compliant heart. You've received new desires, a new impulse that loves God and loves others. Now thank God for your new heart and walk away from the old. And under the new covenant, we are now on intimate terms with God. Verse 11. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Under the new covenant, there are no secondhand experiences with God. You can know God, not by proxy or by priest, but personally through Jesus Christ. Back during the pandemic, Pope Francis told Catholics that if they were locked down and unable to confess to a priest, they could, and I quote, go to God directly and experience God's loving forgiveness. (laughs) Quite an admission for the leader of Catholicism. Of course, later he qualified his statement. He says, as soon as you can, though, you need to go to a priest. But according to the Bible, the Pope's exception is God's rule. We don't need any human priest anymore. We have a better priest. His name is Jesus Christ. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Did you hear that? What God forgives, he forgets. Come to Jesus and you'll receive a brand new start. So verse 13, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The author of Hebrews is assuring these Jewish Christians that it's no longer necessary to live under the old covenant. Judaism, with all of its rules and rituals and requirements, all of its penalties and priests, are now archaic. It's outdated. The dawning of Christianity has superseded it all. Through Christ, God has now struck a new deal with his people. And here it is. He promises us a new heart, a new start, and a new part. All he asks of us is to believe. Father, thank you.